If you go into the Dublin mountains, up to the old 18th century hunting lodge known as the Hellfire Club, and you look north, you see out across the beginning of the great central plain rimmed far off in the distance by Sleeve Gwillen and Armagh, and Sleeve Donard and the rest of the Mourne Mountains in County Down, and by the uplands of the Cooley Peninsula. But closer, in the lowland, what you see is a great big suburban sprawl of housing estate upon housing estate. This sprawl is only a comparatively recent development. A hundred years ago, an awful lot of that land was farmland. A different Dublin, an agrarian Dublin. Not a bucolic countryside, but an industrious hive of food production. Obviously, there still is farming and horticulture in County Dublin. But that said... In 1913, there were farm labourer meetings in Crumlin, which is now such a long way into the city. You're listening to the latest Peters and Sheep episode taking a look at the Irish Revolution from a different perspective and bringing some hidden histories into the light. The name of this episode, in Dublin County in 1913, is taken from a folk ballad. In Dublin City in 1913 is the opening line of a reasonably well-known song called The Ballad of James Larkin in reference to the syndicalist union leader. I first heard it on a 1970 album from a group called Marksmen, a little charity shop discovery. Christy Moore recorded a version of it around the same time. And like many folk ballads, it actually dates from a long time after the events it describes. In fact, it was written by Donna McDonough, who was only one year old in 1913 when uh, the great Dublin lockout convulsed Ireland's capital in a battle between in the one corner, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, and in the other, the Dublin Employers Federation. Donna McDonough was actually the son of Thomas McDonough, the poet and playwright executed for his part in leading the Nationalist Insurrection in Dublin City in 1916. Donna McDonough was himself a composer of poems and plays and also a judge. By a long mile, the 1913 lockout wins the race to be the best remembered part of the history of the workers' movement in Ireland uh, during the revolutionary years. Partly because it happened in Dublin, where in later decades there was still a left and a labour movement to remember and remake its history. Partly because 1913 can be made safer, since a curtain raiser for the 1916 rebellion, something which would have been uncomplicated and uncontroversial before the North exploded in the 1970s and 1980s. And indeed, that is exactly the way the bad of James Larkin frames things concluding with the Easter Rebellion of 1916. This is the story of a different Dublin, though. Not a Dublin of trams and tenements, but a Dublin of bullocks and brassicas. Hence the title of this episode, In Dublin County, in 1913. Now, before we go any further, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be sure of getting future episodes, and follow and share the project on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thanks to everyone who has shared, it is appreciated. This is the latest in a series looking at the years of the Irish Revolution from different perspectives than the usual looking at the Irish Revolution from below and in its particularly agrarian aspects. Agriculture was by far the largest industry in Ireland at the time, at least outside of the North East, and also looking at the Irish Revolution in a global perspective through following the travels of the Irish regiments of the British Army and their involvement in countering insurgency across the Empire. So there have been episodes on the 1919 Meath and Kildare farm labour strike 
and on the cattle drives in the west of Ireland in 1920, also on the Irish Farmers Union, and then a couple on the Irish regiments in the British Army, including one on the Leinster Regiment's role in suppressing a rebellion in southwest India in 1921. So go back and listen to all that after this, and remember to subscribe to get future episodes. Fears and Sheep is on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. So to get back now to the uh, world of 1913. The three largest employment sectors in Ireland in the 1911 census were farmer general labour, domestic service or related service, and textiles or clothing. Those three were many multiples larger than any other sector. Textile production was clustered in the north. Most of Ireland comprised of the sort of places with the sort of people with the sort of jobs that would make it very improbable for much of a workers' movement to exist. Domestic servants were isolated as individuals or in very small groups and in close, intimate relations of deference and subordination with their employers. Domestic workers were largely unorganised. There were some notable exceptions. In 1917, Helena Maloney of the Irish Women's Workers' Union set up a domestic workers' union, uh, but it was unsuccessful. However, domestic servants in Kilrush, County Clare, did join the Transport Union in 1919 and did manage to to win wage increases. There may be other exceptions. Uh, For instance, a Labour councillor in this stall was a domestic servant. Only lots of local studies will bring those exceptions into the light. Now, of farm labourers, there were live-in labourers whose position was not unlike that of domestic servants. There might be only one employee in the workplace and they would live with their employer. Uh, By no means all farm labourers were in that sort of position, but the rest of them were by and large in small groups scattered across the country with many different employers, Uh, not to mention the fact that the demand for labour in agriculture is strongly seasonal. Typically, where you see agricultural workers' movements is where you have plantation-scale agriculture and, as a result, significantly large concentrations of workers in the one workplace. That is very different from the situation that prevailed in Ireland 100 years ago. The particular circumstances prevailing back then was a food supply crisis and hence government measures to force farmers to grow more tillage crops and hence more call for workers and more powerful workers. There was more demand for their labour and they were thus less easy to be replaced and there was much, much more of a farm workers movement and it was much, much more militant than uh, hitherto. But we can't just take the line that this big structural context, this objective factor, solely made the movement because in some ways the farm labourers' movement existed before then, and in one instance, as a militant movement which foreshadowed the movement of the years between 1917 and 1923. And that instance, the harbinger of what was to come, was in Dublin in 1913. Uh, the Dublin case is interesting. It's at odds with how we think of many of the places involved then, which are of course now suburbia. But the Dublin case is also of interest as it was a setting for a different form of agriculture with more vegetable production and market gardening. So what's market gardening? Well, the simplest way to define it is to think of intensive production of vegetables or fruit crops near to the market where the products will be consumed. So typically market gardening was something that went on near to the cities. Basically, it's about having fresh fruit and vegetables near to the main consumer markets in a period when, unlike today, there wasn't the transport technology and infrastructure to cheaply transport those foodstuffs long distances quickly. Sometimes there's also a distinction made between the hoe and the plough, with the idea that market gardening usually means using hand tools 
And sometimes there's the distinction between specialized market gardener and a farmer who, say, grows cereals as well as vegetables or practices some other form of mixed farming. Now, I'm not at all sure how useful those distinctions are for us, or indeed if they're useful at all, uh, but these distinctions are there in the literature. The main centres of market gardening in Dublin, according to a 1938 article, were Crumlin, Rush and Clonsilla. It's unlikely that this was massively different 25 years earlier. Indeed, by 1938, the heyday of Crumlin as a market garden centre was already gone. In the country as a whole, generally where commercial vegetable production was a mainstay, were either places near the cities, so both Limerick and Cork had their traditional market garden areas, or places near to seashores where there was the advantages of sandy soil, a lot less frost, and lots of seaweed for manure. Here's a 1938 description of the Cork market garden area. Much of the Cork district has been built over in recent years, and it is estimated that the acreage has been reduced from 1,000 to 500 acres due to this cause. The soil is very rich from long manuring. A market gardener told me that he could dig down to the depth of 3 foot 6 inches before noticing the slightest change in the colour of the soil. Brassicas, celery, lettuce, onions, thyme, parsley, carrots are all grown. End quote. Likewise, by 1938, the builder had encroached on most of the market gardens in Crumlin. But 25 years earlier, that had yet to come to pass. How things went in the Crumlin Market Garden Centre was like this according to, uh, according to the same 1938 article. Quote, Female labour is largely employed by the Crumlin growers. Cabbage is not carried to the market by the growers, but in hired pony carts driven by their owners. For a fee of two and six, these pony cart owners pack a load, drive it to the market, a distance of about four miles, and then deliver it to the shopkeeper who has bought it. End quote. Now, Rush being a coastal area, as one might imagine, it fell into the category of having the favourable environmental conditions of some coastal sites. I'm not sure why Clonsilla is on the list of Dublin market garden centres, but this might be as um, sites closer to the city had already been swallowed up by uh, suburbia. Now, that's the areas of specialised vegetable production. That's Crumlin, Rush and Clonsilla. But in North County Dublin, more generally, farmers would have vegetables as one of their crops. Generally speaking, one had more cattle fattening and finishing to the northwest and more tillage to the northeast. So that vegetable production most likely would have been going on in the northeast of County Dublin. One particularly significant thing in all this is that vegetable production is labour intensive. So here you have an area with perhaps more employees than usual, uh, especially when you're talking about Dublin, which was one of the counties with a clustering of larger, higher value farms. That is to say, farms of a size where they could not be worked purely by family labour. Now, doubtless units of production were actually of varying scale, and in fact, the impression one gets of Rush was of a lot of smallholders. Also, lots of the Dublin farm workers lived in small towns or villages, and so they were brought together in that respect. So, this was the setting within which the Irish Transport and General Workers Union launched its campaign to recruit farm workers in the summer of 1913. Now, it is worth noting there were some precursors before the summer in 1913. So, for example, in April 1913, some farm workers had walked off a small farm near Drydenstown, but they returned within a day or two when the farmer threatened to evict their families. Um, it's noticeable that this recruitment campaign of the Transport Union in the summer of 1913 had a more expansive agenda than simply an orientation to the wage-based interests of disembedded wage earners. Addressing a rally in June 
Jim Larkin said, quote, Strike out for yourselves and before the next harvest you will be in receipt of better wages, better housing accommodation and more land. So part of the goal was houses and land. Land, as in the optimum situation, extensive gardens were attached to the houses of farm workers. This was necessary because of the seasonality of agricultural employment, because of its precarious and temporary nature, and that made for a requirement for other sources of income and sustenance, um, like petty agricultural trade, like raising poultry, eggs, um, or pig or two, and growing vegetables for home use. Better housing accommodation because of the infamous fourth-class houses which were typically single-room mud-walled dwellings. Uh, the scale of changes in housing can be gauged from the figures for fourth-class housing in rural areas. In 1881, there were almost 40,000 such houses. That's 40,000 one-roomed mud-walled dwellings. By 1891, that figure had halved, and by 1911, there were only 5,000 such dwellings. So... By 1921, 50% of the labourers in Leinster and Munster were housed in new council cottages. And so this process of building council houses raised standards, and through raising standards, it raised expectations. So the Transport Union Rural Labour Campaign of the summer of 1913 opened on Sunday, June 8th, with a meeting in Baldoyle. And later that month, there was a rally in Crumlin. On July 12th, the Irish Worker, which was the newspaper of the Transport Union, or the ITGW, carried a report on the Swords meeting of, of the Agricultural Labour Campaign. The speakers were Bill Partridge, Jim Larkin, Shaw Desmond of London, and uh, P. Dowling of Cork. I'm wondering if uh, Shaw Desmond of London was the Waterford-born novelist, and if P. Dowling of Cork was actually John Dowling of Cove, who was later involved as a full-time organiser in the Port Arlington Sawmills Lockout and the Munster Creamery Soviets. The report quotes part of Larkin's speech at the rally. Quote, A minimum wage of £1 a week. A one o'clock stop on Saturday and starting at seven in the morning until six at night. Overtime at the rate of six pence per hour. If you work after one o'clock on a Saturday, the farmer will have to pay you a shilling an hour and a shilling an hour for Sunday. Now about the women. What about the unfortunate women? Well, 10 shillings a week for women, and the same hours as for the men. We want permanency of employment, and the extras now given in the way of milk, potatoes and cabbage must be continued. That is part of your wages. End quote. Now we could argue that an acceptance of gender pay disparity, as shown in this speech by uh, Larkin, represented a limit to radicalism in this instance. It is worth bearing in mind, however, that in later farm disputes, I found next to no mention of women whatsoever, so Larkin's speech probably needs to be seen in that context. The July 19th issue of the Irish Worker carried an ad for a meeting of the agricultural labour movement in Lucan on the 20th, and also, regarding the wider social side of the movement, an ad for the Irish Women's Workers' Union excursion to the Glen of the Downs. There was also a report of the meeting in Clondalkin, uh, one of the speakers was Bill Partridge again. Partridge referred to Davitt making a speech in the same place, referred to the land war and to Davitt and land nationalisation, made a demand for free land and houses, and he went on to claim that once we had 11,000 landlords, now we have about 200,000. On August 9th, the Irish worker announced weekly delegate meetings of farm labourers at the Forge in Crumlin 
the band room in Lucan, hostelos in Clondalkin and an unspecified location in Hazelhatch. There was a report of the Blanchardstown meeting. There were three bands and 2,000 people at it. Heard from the platform was a strong temperance message and the claim that landlords employed more labour and that home rulers didn't want to extend medical benefits to Ireland. The report of Larkin's speech went like this, quote, Concluding, he told them that the transport union was open to all unskilled workers and to those skilled workers who had no union of their own. In the Women work- Workers' Union, they took in all women who worked, whether it was the wife in the house or the worker in the factory or the shop, and he thought it was time that the women in Blanchestown were organised. The meeting concluded amid great enthusiasm. End quote. So, as we come into harvest time, some agreements were made, but by the later half of August 1913, there were about 600 workers on strike. That was principally on larger farms and farms closer to the city. The demand was for 17 shillings a week, which was a 20% increase, and a set working day of nine hours in the winter and 10 in the summer. So there were strikes in Belcamp, which is just above Darndale, Clockran near the airport, Jamestown in Swords, Kilester, Rohini, Kulak. Swords was a particular stronghold as well. Earlier in Crumlin on the 5th of August, there had been a short dispute on the farm of Councillor Gerald Begg, who was also a Justice of the Peace or Magistrate. And then in the middle of the month, there were strikes at the O'Neill Farm in Concealy and PJ Kettle's Farm at Santry. So basically, there was a wage demand coming up to harvest time, an attempt to make a countywide agreement and a growing number of localised disputes. In that context came the lockout which began in the city in late August and which farmers as an organised body joined in with. So on the 12th of September, the Dublin Farmers Association unanimously pledged not to employ any man who belonged to the Irish Transport and General Workers Union and to dismiss anyone who remained a member. In other words, they were joining the lockout began on the 26th of August by the city employers. So in September, there was a mass walk-off from the farms of Dublin. The estimate of how many farm workers were involved, either on strike or locked out, well, the estimates broadly range from 1,000 to 2,000. In September, there were walk-offs in Hoth, Lucan, Rush, Santry, Ballymon and Finglas. So on the 28th of September 1913, an almost 400-strong procession assembled in streams of people from Concealy, Swords and Kulak to take part in a transport union rally at Croydon Park, Dublin. Croydon Park, a mansion in Clontarf, with three acres of land, was a recreational centre for union members and their families. This was to be an area for gardening, for keeping a cow or two, and for having playing pitches and a boxing ring. An Irish worker article entitled The Jovial Revolution described the opening of Croydon Park in August 1913. The article reads, The social revolution so far as Ireland is concerned, was ushered in last Monday. There was no bloodshed and no violence, but nevertheless there had been a revolution. To watch a dock labourer walk into a mansion, saunter into the dining room and proceed to put a tuppence doorstep sandwich and a penny bottle of minerals out of sight without the slightest air of surprise at at his surroundings, struck me as the most revolutionary sight I ever saw in my life. 
Not long ago, a mansion was a place where working men were supposed to pass with cap in hand with a mumbled blessing or curse for the lord of the manor. End quote. This opening event was billed as the Grand Temperance Fete in Children's Carnival and took place on the 3rd of August 1913. Like some of the speech-making in the farm labour campaign, Croydon Park does show something of the Transport Union's more expansive agenda in its early years. In the financial doldrums after the lockout, the Union surrendered the lease to Croydon Park and it was demolished in the mid-1920s to make way for the Merino housing scheme. Merino, as a garden city suburb, might be said to also represent an unrealised dream of the future, something it shares with that brief part of Croydon's Park history when it was the Transport Union Social Centre. So, back to the strikes. In a nutshell, the course of the dispute goes like this. The lockout started on the 12th of September. Strike breakers were being brought in by early October uh, there were some riots and ruckuses in Finglas and Swords. By early November, the workers were pretty much defeated except for Swords, Concedi and the Lucan Clondalkin areas. There was a bit of arson in November, mostly of the hay harvest. Workers in Swords in the north and in Lucan and Clondalkin in the west were the last to capitulate in March 1914 which puts them among the final workers to go back to work at whatever terms they were offered during the Dublin lockout. That's the bare skeleton of what happened. A notable incident took place in Swords on the night of October the 9th, an incident which English Catholic poet and essayist G.K. Chesterton dedicated a poem to, a poem entitled The Song of Swords. The poem was uh, carried in the British Labour newspaper The Daily Herald. So when swords at 10pm on the night of October 9th, a herd of sheep and a large herd of cattle were driven through the town by non-union drovers escorted by the police. They soon encountered the disruptive attentions of the strikers and the animals were scattered. Six or seven peelers, as the police were known, tried to gather the scattered stock, but when they were gathered, they were again scattered. In the darkness, fists, battens and bottles flew. Uh, With the help of a bicycle-mounted lamp, the police arrested one man, held him captive and sent for reinforcements. Ultimately, the peelers retreated to their barracks with with two arrestees, and then the barracks were set upon, before more reinforcements were hastily assembled, and, after two patent charges, the police held the streets of the town and held them all that night for the sheep and cattle to pass. Ultimately, the Swords Constabulary Station was to have a total of 80 police officers, up from one sergeant and two constables in normal times. This was probably the largest contingent of police marshalled outside the city limits to defend the interests of the employers during the lockout. The first verse of Chesterton's poem memorialising the night of October the 9th, 1913 goes, In the place called Swords on the Irish Road, it is told for a new renown, how we held the horns of the cattle and how we will hold the horns of the devil now. Ere the Lord of Hell with horn on his brow is crowned in Dublin town. So in early October, Andrew Kettle, the farmer's leader, brought in what were scabs essentially from Cavan and Wicklow in the Midlands. Andrew was the father of the more famous Tom Kettle. Uh, another son, Charles Kettle, had a farm in Kulock. Kettle Sr. had farms near Swords and near Finglas uh, in Newtown. Newtown was just where the western edge of Dublin Airport is now. He brought in replacement workers in early October. In the case of Charles, at least, this was for the potato harvest. 
Similar arrangements were then made for other farmers. Police were brought onto the farms to protect the imported workers. The Kells were cattle and tillage farmers and produced vegetables too. So they were among the mixed farmers I was talking about earlier. So who was Andrew Kettle? Well, he was father of the now more famous Tom Kettle, who was a member of Parliament, poet, Irish volunteer, academic and finally lieutenant in the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, in which role he lost his life in the Battle of the Somme in 1916. Andrew Kettle's obituary in the Cork Examiner reads, quote, He was one of the founders of the Dublin Tenants' Defence Association and in that capacity was one of the deputation which induced the youth Parnell to challenge the Tory hold in County Dublin in the contest against Colonel Taylor, which was Parnell's baptism of fire in Irish politics. When Dowett unfurled the banner of the Land League, he joined him in the foundation of that organisation and was one of the most prominent members of the Land League executive. Upon the arrest of Parnell, Dillon, Dowett and other leaders in 1881, he assumed Mr Patrick Egan the control of the organisation and was one of the signatories of the No Rent Manifesto. His arrest under Forced Coercion Act speedily followed and he was imprisoned first at Nace and afterwards at Kilmainham. The obituary concluded, The passing away now of this great veteran nationalist will be deeply mourned by Irishmen in every quarter of the habitable globe. So that's what the examiner had to say. Kettle never managed to get elected to Parliament, but had a very extensive career in public life across a long life. When you consider that his first public involvement was in the Tenants' Right League in the 1850s, and he was still around to fight what he called Larkinism in 1913. Kettle's comment in 1913 was, The farmers have beaten the bully. The men are returning to work and we'll be all back soon. We can understand then Partridge's comment at the July Farm Labour Rally in Clondalkin. Partridge said, Once we had 11,000 landlords, now we have about 200,000. Meaning that as the land war and land acts made owners out of the farmers, they were the new landlords. There were evictions from colleges owned by employers during the lockout, both in the city and in the county, so Partridge's analogy was not altogether misplaced. You've been listening to Peters and Sheep Rebel Tales in the Land. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe. The next episode in the pipeline is a little different. We'll still be on the land, but no longer in the Irish Revolution. We'll be looking at the agrarian and ecological origins of disease epidemics. So that's a pandemic special out soon. Subscribe to get it.